Welcome to the Way of the Bible podcast, inspiring and empowering Christians of all measures of faith to simply believe God and follow Jesus. Join in with our host, Bible teacher and guide, Dr. Philip Zimmerman, as he explores the paths through Scripture that lead to life in the will of God. Being joyful always, praying continually, and being thankful in all circumstances, simply by believing God and following Jesus. And now, Dr. Z. Welcome again. This is Dr. Philip Zimmerman and Dr. Z. And you join me for episode number 043 of Way of the Bible podcast. So glad to have you with me today. This is our third of eight episodes in our mini-series entitled Conquest and Fall of a Nation. On this episode, we'll look at Israel's choice to be ruled over by a king rather than by God. On today's episode, we will see Israel ask for a king. God gave Moses advanced instructions for this request. Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen and 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law in these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. As we get to the text, realize we're going to cover both 1st and 2nd Samuel in a little over 35 minutes, meaning there is a lot of great and theologically important materials we're going to pass over. 1st Samuel opens with the account of Hannah, who is a barren wife of Elkanah, who is an Ephrathite. Hannah went with her husband to the temple in Shiloh annually to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. On one visit, she pleads with the Lord for a son, who she will dedicate to the Lord as a Nazarite for his lifetime. Well, God answered her prayer, and as soon as her son Samuel was weaned, she went to the temple at Shiloh, offered a sacrifice, and took him to Eli the priest, says in 1 Samuel 1, 26-28. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord." As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Here's an important note. Samuel's parents were God-fearing people, not so much for Eli's sons. It says in 1 Samuel 2.12 and in verse 17, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now these are the priests who were leading the sacrifices at the temple. It says they did not know the Lord. Worthless men. The sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And if you read that in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, you'll see what the text is talking about. It's pretty bad. It says that Eli tried to counsel them, but they would not listen to him, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. God also let Eli know of his displeasure and that he was going to cut off the strength of his house and his father's house and that there would be no one old in future generations. And God said, and if anybody does get old, it's only so that they can see that there's no one else old in your family line. So God curses the family line of Eli because of his sons and his own transgressions against God while he served at the temple. Samuel grew up and ministered to the Lord at the temple in the presence of Eli. It says in 1 Samuel 3, 1, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. It's interesting, this, the vision of the Lord and the word of the Lord. There was no prophecies going on. Good, the God just wasn't speaking. One night while lying in the temple, the Lord called out Samuel's name. Samuel. Uh, and the first two times this happened, Samuel makes a beeline back to where Eli's lying. He says, hey, Eli, what do you want? Both times, Eli sent him back saying he did not call. 
It says after the second time the Lord called and he was sent back in 1 Samuel 3, 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So this, that's after the second time he called. So then the third time he calls, he goes again to Eli. Eli perceived that the Lord was calling him. So he told Samuel, next time he calls, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. What the text says next is very telling about the word of the Lord. It says in 1 Samuel 3.10, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now, there is more than enough scriptural evidence for me to know that the word of the Lord here is also the commander of the Lord's army, or the angel of the Lord that spoke with Joshua and Gideon and Samson's parents, and the word that became flesh in the New Testament, Jesus himself. I think this is one, of, again, a Christophany. This is Jesus appearing before his incarnation. And he's appearing to Samuel at the temple. Now, the word tells Samuel a dire message about Eli and his family, and that there is no sacrifice or offering forever that will atone for their misconduct. Samuel reveals the message to Eli, who in essence shrugs it off. <laughs> yeah, let the Lord do what he says. First Samuel three nineteen to 21, 4 to 1. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord is with Samuel. Samuel's not letting a word of, this, of the Lord drop to the ground. He's, he's retaining it all. And then the word that was in Samuel went out to all of Israel. Samuel now established as a prophet in the land. God's about to do some cleaning of his temple using the Philistines as his agents of judgment. The Philistines confront the Israelites in battle. Eli's two sons, in a bold move, take the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and take it to the front lines into the battlefield. The Philistines defeat the Israelites, kill Eli's two wicked sons, and capture the Ark of the Covenant. When Eli hears the news, he's, he's leaning back in his chair, he slips, he breaks his neck, and he dies. And through a very interesting turn of events ordained by God, the Philistines are troubled when they bring the Ark of the Covenant into their land. And the trouble becomes so intense that the Philistines say, we've got to give this, we've got to give this thing back to the Israelites. So they return the Ark to the Israelites. And in that return, they make a way to test of whether any, all this stuff, that bad stuff that was happening to them was from God or it just happened to happen. And the way that the, the, the way the delivery of the Ark happened, it was confirmed to them that there really was a God in heaven who was doing all this to them. God, God is always proving himself right and faithful to those who are looking for him. It eventually got to Kirith Jerem, where it remained for 20 years. So the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord's out of the picture for 20 years. So in essence, God took away Israel's temple. <laughs> and the Philistines took it away. They gave it back, and it never made it back to Shiloh, where it had been sitting. Samuel steps up as a judge in Israel. Remember, we just got done with the book of Judges. Samuel steps up as that judge in Israel, calling them to return to the Lord. It says in 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 to 4, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah that are among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah, and they serve the Lord only. After this, Samuel then leads the Israelites in repentance and presents sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. The Israelites then go out and defeat the Philistines and reclaim all the lands that the Philistines had taken from them. Samuel judged all the days of his life, making an annual circuit of the nation and, of course, hoping to pass the position on to his sons. The, the people reject Samuel's sons as they have constantly and continually demonstrated themselves not to be trustworthy. So the people say, hey, look, we don't want your sons ruling over us. We want a king. <laughs> the people demand a king. And Samuel tried to warn the people that they didn't really didn't want a king. I read to you earlier that in the Pentateuch, God provided for them to have a king. But Samuel is telling them, no, you, you don't want a king. You don't want that. It says in 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 to 8 and 19 to 20, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Verse 19. 
But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. This is after Samuel said, hey, look, you don't want to do this. They refused. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So this is how the people of Israel viewed this idea of a king, that he was going to be not only a judge because they had judges for a couple hundred years. And now Samuel was another judge, but they would have a judge and a king who would lead them into battle because the judges, while they were judging the land, were not necessarily the people that were leading them into battle, although they did. But the people were really supposed to pick up arms under the encouragement of the judge and go into battle. Well, now they wanted a king who would not only judge them, but take them into battle. So God has Samuel anoint Saul, the son of Kish, who was a wealthy Benjaminite, king over Israel. Now Saul was a young man and the most handsome and tallest of all the people. It says in 1 Samuel 10.1, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. That's what Samuel said when he anointed Saul. So Samuel gathers all the tribes of Israel to announce their new king. It says in 1 Samuel 10, 18 and 19. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set up a king over us. To show the people that the king is coming from God, he casts lots for the tribes to select the tribe from which the king will be selected. He then casts lots for the clans to show which of the clans will be selected. He then casts lots for the families in the clan to show which of the families in the clan will be selected. Then he casts a lot of the family members in the clan and who pops up but Saul as king. And so Samuel introduced their king and the people shouted, long live the king. Okay, so now the people had a king and his name was Saul. Word soon came to Saul that the Amorites were besieging Jabesh-Gilead. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he led the people into battle and defeated the Ammonites. Afterward, the people took Saul up to Gilgal and reaffirmed the kingdom under Saul. After this, Samuel, who had been the judge of Israel most of his life, said goodbye to the people now that they had a king, and again warned of their transgression against God for choosing a human king rather than accepting God as their king. The people sensed their mistake. They kind of get the message this time. And they ask Samuel to pray for them so that they wouldn't die. Oh, we've done, we've really sinned this time. It says in 1 Samuel 12, 20 to 22, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Philistines are restless and begin to invade Israel. Saul is waiting in Gilgal for Samuel to present a burnt offering to the Lord and pray for success before he engages the Philistines. That's how the things were normally done. Every every seven days, Samuel came to sacrifice at Gilgal. And Saul was supposed to wait there for the seven days until Samuel got there to make this offering. And it was on the seventh day, and Samuel was kind of delayed in coming. So Saul took it upon himself to present the burnt offerings. And then Samuel shows up soon thereafter. Samuel asks Saul about what is he doing? (laughs) Why have you presumed that you could do this? Saul gives Samuel an excuse for his uh, severe grievance. Usurped, in other words, he usurped Samuel as the one who offers the sacrifice. So now that he's king, I guess I could be the prophet too. You know, do the role of the prophet too. What do we need Samuel for anyway? You know, Samuel said goodbye to the people. I'm going to take over. And Samuel tells Saul of the seriousness of his offense. First Samuel 13, 13 to 14. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. This is how severe this was. If he had just waited, if Adam had just not eaten that fruit, we could have eaten from the tree of life. If Saul had just waited, you know, another five minutes. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I mean, the kingdom just started. He goes out and beats the Philistines. 
and now he's about to go battle the Philistines again, and, and he's, he gets kicked out because he doesn't wait for Samuel to make the offering. Saul left with his army, and they meet the Philistines in battle. His son Jonathan actually engages the Philistines first, and they end up routing the Philistines. Saul then goes on to defeat his enemies on all sides. And so Samuel has told him this horrific thing that's happened, but I think by time passes and Saul's like, oh, well, what, what, what was he talking about anyway? It was just a sacrifice. Next, we find that Samuel comes to Saul with a special request from God to devote to destruction the Amalekites. If, uh, that is to kill everyone, men, women, children, animals, you know, burn it all. Devote to destruction for what they did to Israel when they came out of Egypt. The Amalekites came out and they, they attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. And God said, I'm going to get back at the Amalekites. Saul, your first role as king that I'm going to give you, I want you to go and devote to destruction these Amalekites. Well, Saul went out to carry out the command and all the despised and worthless things, they in fact did devote to destruction. But they spared the king King Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good. And they took it as plunder back to Gilgal. When Samuel shows up after Saul returns, he was very disturbed that Saul did not obey the Lord. You know, he's like, did you carry out all the things that, 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 that devote to destruction? Oh, yes, of course we did. Yes, of course. And <laughs> Samuel goes, what's this bleeding of the sheep I hear? Meh, meh. Of course, Saul gave Sam, Samuel some very lame excuses for why he didn't do it, right? Why, why didn't he? He was afraid of the man. Oh, they wanted to bring back the best, uh, the best things that they were in the kingdom to bring back to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And as a result of that, it says in 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So Samuel's letting you know right there, you know, Saul, you rebelled, you presumed that you could do this and get away with it, but don't you know that your rebellion is as the sin of divination, which was also caused to be devoted to destruction. Saul and his whole family could have been devoted to destruction right then. And the presumption that you made, oh, this is okay, we're going to get away with it, as as iniquity and idolatry. And again, if they were caught in iniquity and idolatry, they were to be devoted to destruction. It was very clear in the law. And it continues, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Ching, second time. Samuel's letting Saul know God has rejected him as king. Samuel is then called by God to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. That comes out of 1 Samuel 16.1. As Samuel was admiring Jesse's older sons, because they're real tall and strong and that kind of stuff, God said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Then, of course, they, they, they get to the end of the line, and Samuel asks Jesse, hey, do you have any more sons? He said, well, only David, but he's out taking you know, care of the sheep. <laughs> Samuel, Can you please call David in? You know, So he brings David in, and the Lord tells Samuel he's the one. So Samuel anoints David in front of all of his brothers, and it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It comes out of 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, and it didn't leave. As you go on in the text, you'll see that the Spirit of the Lord had actually departed from Saul, and the Lord tormented Saul with a harmful spirit. But Saul's attendants recommended that music be played for Saul, and Saul approved of this suggestion. You know, maybe this would knock the spirit away. And one of Saul's servants spoke up and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Comes out of 1 Samuel sixteen eighteen. So as a result of that, Saul sent for Jesse's son to come into his presence, become his armor bearer. He really liked him. He made him his armor bearer, and that happened to be David. And whenever David played the lyre, the harmful spirit would would depart from Saul. So Saul would have this harmful spirit to be upon him, and David would play the lyre, and the spirit would leave. It was very interesting. This is even happening before Goliath incident. (laughs) He's actually in... Saul's household, David is. So I believe that at this point, 
The Lord is training David already at a very young age to be king. What is a king like? And what do I not want a king to be like? That's David's going to get a lot of that training uh, in, in a real time very soon. The Philistine take up arms against Israel and Goliath, the giant from Gath. Remember we, when we were studying the giants when Joshua came into the land, we, we had mentioned that not all the giants were destroyed. Well, here's one of them that David's encountering and the Israelites are encountering a couple hundred years later from Gath. He's called Goliath. And he was the Philistines' champion. It says in the text, if you took out the measurements, that he was actually about nine feet tall, and he had a, a spear that he said that was like a weaver's beam was was the rod on the spear, and the tip of the spear weighed about 15 pounds. You can imagine a 15-pound weight held about four or five feet out in front of you straight out. I mean, we couldn't hold it up. I don't think anybody could hold it up. Well, that was the size of the head of a spear. This was a giant. And this Philistine giant Goliath challenged Israel for 40 consecutive days to send out their champion, and they would battle, and, and Goliath would fight him, and the winner of the battle would win the day. And so, of course, the, the men of Israel, every time Goliath would come out and speak, they were all frightened to death and scared, and Saul was hoping to find a champion that would go out, but no one would go for, go for him. Jesse sends uh, David out to go visit with his brothers, who were three of his brothers were in the army. So he sends him to the front lines, and David goes up, brings some food, and starts asking around what's going on. Here's Goliath. And he goes, what the heck is that? Who's that guy? And they tell him, look, this guy's been doing this for 40 days, and he's been challenging challenging us to come out and fight him. But Saul said, whoever fights this giant, and if he wins, Saul's going to give him all kind of great things and rewards. And so David is getting getting really kind of like, why isn't anybody going up and fighting this? It gets back to Saul that uh, there's a there's a person in the camp who's really talking trash about this about this Goliath, and so Saul sends for him, and David convinces Saul that he can take down the giant. And David, you know, Saul and David go back and forth, and and he's eventually convinced that he really thinks that David can do it. So he gives David all of his armor, and David says, I can't wear any of this armor. So with a sling and five smooth stones. In his pouch, he goes out to face Goliath. Well, why five stones? There's only one giant. He's going to miss four times before the fifth one. No, no. Goliath had four brothers. You'll find out later in the text that Goliath has four brothers. So David's going out just in case. These brothers are kind of like behind the background, waiting for Goliath to fall, and these four brothers are going to come forward. David David was prepared to take them all on. David was a man. Oh, my gosh. What a man. Unfazed by what he saw before him, but trusting fully in God. Now, of course, as David approached the giant, who was cursing him by his gods. It says in 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47, David responded, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David, of course, then rushed forward toward the giant. Giant kind of stepped forward to him. Before the giant could do anything, David put a rock in a sling and hurled the giant. Of course, lodged nicely there in his forehead, and the giant and Goliath just goes collapses forward. Boom, hits the ground. David runs up to him, pulls out the Goliath's sword, and cuts off the giant's head, and holds it up in his hand. And the people of Israel go bananas, wow! And the people of the Philistines go wow! <laughs> and the rout is on. Israel chases down the Philistines, and they completely rout the army of the Philistines. After the battle, Saul's son, Jonathan, he just loved David and everything about him. And he goes up to David and he makes a covenant with him. In exchanges, he gives David his, you know, his cloak, his, his, his belt, his, his sword, you know, everything that would be symbolic of everything that Jonathan owns and everything that Jonathan has, he gives it to David. And they enter into this covenant. After that, Saul doesn't let David go home. So David is accompanying the army back to the city. After this great victory, they've had this great victory over the Philistines, and David's still carrying Goliath's head in his hand. He takes it all the way back with him. As they were entering the city after the victory, the women came out celebrating and singing, and they were singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. That's First uh, Samuel eighteen seventeen. Well, when they when Saul heard this, he was kind of he was very upset. He was very angry. What's this going on that these women are saying, I've killed thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. This can be nothing else than that David is going to be king of Israel. 
And Saul kind of knew that internally. He kind of got the message right there. And from this point forward, what you'll see in the text is that Saul does everything in his power, including attempted murder and cold blood on several occasions to kill David. Now, one of the first methods he used was he put David in the commander of, of the army of thousands, and he would send him out against the Philistines, hoping that the Philistines would kill him. What a great way, right? So, I mean, because he knew that David was going to lead the lead the people into battle, and so this fool of a young man, he's going to lead these these soldiers into battle, and one of these Philistines is going to kill him. Well, they, the Philistines don't kill him. In fact, David, God gives David and his army great success everywhere he goes. He is totally he totally wipes out the enemy. So David is now has great, has great fame and respect and honor from the people, from the soldiers, from the military commander. Everybody loves him. All this news is getting back to Saul, and Saul gets very frustrated. So he tries to devise another plan. So he says, "Okay, I'm going to get let me get David to marry one of my daughters." Uh, the first time it failed, and the second time uh, his his second daughter Michael really loved uh, David. Said he loved that she loved David, and so Saul made a way for David to marry his daughter. And David was like, who am I to marry the king's daughter? I'm just a, I'm just a commoner. How can I be the king's son-in-law? Saul gives David a challenge he can't refuse, which he thinks for sure David's going to get killed in this. And David fills the, uh, the challenge that Saul gives him. And, of course, he gives Michael as his, as his uh, wife. So David marries into the family. After the marriage uh, deal failed with bringing death upon David, Saul then commands his son Jonathan and all of his servants to kill David. At your first chance, you have to kill David. And Jonathan stood up to defend David, but you know his father didn't listen to him. So that so here is David in the house, and then Saul tries to murder him right there in the house while David's playing the liar in front of Saul. Saul steps up with a spear and tries to spear him against the wall, and uh, David flees. And on several other occasions, Saul makes the attempt to kill David. And each time, Jonathan's like, my dad's not going to kill you. But then finally, Jonathan realizes, my dad's going to kill you. You need to get out of town. And so he tells David that. They make an agreement. And, and four times, Jonathan makes a covenant with, with David on different things. If you read the, through the scriptures, each time he's making a, a covenant about a different thing. So Jonathan uh, sends David away to run away and get away because he says, look, my dad is going to kill you. So David flees from Saul and hides out. And while he's hiding out, 400 other people, you know, d- d- disenfranchised uh, warriors out there, uh, join up with uh, David, and he has himself a nice little army. Well, to near the end of the book, uh, it records this numerous attempts by Saul to kill David. Saul is t- t- constantly trying to track David down to kill him, and he goes out to try to kill him. On two occasions, Saul came within David's grasp. On one occasion, uh, uh, Saul was uh, relieving himself in a cave, and he was happened to be relieving himself in the cave that David and his soldiers were were in the back of. And David comes up behind him and comes trips off a little piece of Saul's robe, and then he just feels horrible that he's done this. He's desecrated the Lord's anointed's robe. So uh, Saul exits the cave, and, and David cries out behind him. He goes right out behind him, says Saul. Saul turns around and says, are you my servant, David? And, and David just wails at him saying, look, you know, the Lord sent you in, gave you into my hands. I am not your enemy. What person lets his enemy go free? I have not, my, I, my hand will not touch the Lord's anointed. Let the God judge between me and you. If, if I am not being righteous here, may God judge me. But if you're the one who is being wicked, you know, God's going to judge you too. And of course, Saul was all repentant. Oh, I'm so sorry about this, David. I'm not going to hunt you again. So he goes home. Well, like, of course, that was until the next time he wanted to find David and kill him. So then they're out there trying to find David again. They're camped out. And, and David and one of his associates, they go and they get into the camp while they're all asleep. And they grab the spear and the uh, water bottle that's by Saul's head and get back out of the camp. And David does the same thing with Saul again. This time he calls out to Abner, who is uh, Saul's commander. Abner, what, what are you doing? Why aren't you guarding the king? And again, David calls out to Saul and lets him know that he had his life in his hands. Look, get, search around and look for your water bottle and your spear. I have it in my hands. I could have killed you at any moment. Why didn't your, why didn't your soldiers protect you? They need to be killed. The, the soldiers who were surrounding you need to be killed because they did not protect the Lord's anointed. Just know that I will never do this. And of course, again, Saul answers in repentance. I'm sorry I'm chasing you. You're right. You know, I did a bad thing. I'm going home. You go home. And after that event, it says that the, the prophet Samuel died and all of Israel gathered together and they mourned his death. Eventually, David and his men flee to Gath to the land of the Philistines to get away from Saul. And Saul finally stops chasing David. He says, oh, he's in the land of Philistines. I'm not going in there to mess with him. He can stay there if he wants. And so uh, Saul gives out the pursuit. 
it is not long before the Philistines gather for battle, and Saul starts to gather his army to go out and battle the Philistines once again. It's just kind of a common thing that they're doing back and forth, Philistines and Israel having a, uh, having a battle. This time, the, there is no one to consult about what the Lord's will is on this battle. So Saul seeks out a medium, right? One of these spiritists to, to let him get a word from the Lord. And so he asked the spiritist to please check on the Lord, see what's going to happen with this battle from the Lord. Can you go to the Lord for me? And the spiritist is in shock. She says, I see someone coming up. And Saul says, who is it? And she says, it's Samuel. So Samuel, uh, the spirit of Samuel comes and he, he asks Saul, why are you disturbing me? Why did you call me up? And Saul says that the Lord's not speaking with him and he's worried about the upcoming battle. And what should he do? Samuel replies, this comes out of uh, 1 Samuel twenty-eight sixteen and 19. Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And that's how Samuel stopped his presentation, and he went back in where he came from. Well, as a result of that, Saul fell flat down in fear. And of course, the, the next day, the Philistines routed Israel, killing Jonathan and a couple of his brothers. And Saul, sensing that the end was near, ordered his armor bearer to come and kill him to avoid being taken by the Philistines and what they would do to him once they captured him and before you know, tortured him before they killed him. But the armor bearer refused to, re- refused to kill him. So Saul took out his sword and fell on his own sword, killing himself. And the armor bearer, seeing what Saul had done, also took out his own sword and killed himself as well. So both of them died on the battlefield. And that's how the book of 1 Samuel ends right there with the death of Saul. The book of 2 Samuel opens with David learning that both Saul and Jonathan have died in battle and Israel has been defeated. And he mourns for the loss of both Saul and Jonathan. David then inquires the Lord of where he should go. And the Lord directs him to Hebron where the men of Judah pronounced him king over Judah. So David returns back to Hebron. Israel's been defeated. They all return back to their homes. David goes to Hebron, and the men of Judah said, we want you to be king. Saul was king. We want you to be king. Meanwhile, Abner, who was the commander of the army of Israel, made Ish-boesh, Saul's son, another one of Saul's sons, king over Israel. So Joab, commander of David's army, and Abner, commander of Israel's army, then over the next little while start to test each other in bloody skirmishes. So with Abner in control of the armies of Israel, the next thing that happens is that Ish-bosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with the concubine. Hey, I heard you sleeping with my concubine. What are you doing sleeping with my concubine? Which, of course, Abner says he had nothing to do with that. So Abner tells the king, look, you know, far be it for me to do that, but know this day I'm going to turn the kingdom over to King David. I'm going to turn this kingdom over to King David. So he makes a beeline down to Jerusalem, has a secret meeting with David, and agrees to convince all the elders of Israel and the army of Israel to accept David as their king. Well, you remember how I said this was a secret meeting? Well, Joab was unaware that this meeting was going on, and he finds out that Abner had been in, in, in town, and he finds out which way Abner is heading back out of town, and Joab goes and kills him. So I guess that message never got back to the uh, leaders of Israel and the commanders of the army and all the people. Two captains of Israel's raiding parties decided to take matters into their own hands, and they murdered the king of Israel and take the news to David, thinking they would find favor with him. And David has them both killed, saying that their own words of murder of a righteous man condemn them. David is later anointed king over all Israel, and the reunification of the nation under a godly leader begins. Finally, we have a godly leader on the throne, and all of Israel is united. Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers and congratulations to David and a construction crew in their own supplies, and they built David this uh, house. I think it was more like a palace. And by this time, David had acquired several wives and started adding concubines, and he had lots of children that are listed in the text. David goes on to defeat the Philistines, brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem with sacrifices and celebrations. Remember, it had been gone for 20 years. David remembers that it's gone, and he's going, I'm going to bring this thing back to Jerusalem. It says in 2 Samuel 5, 13 to 15, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he, that'd be David, sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Soon David finds himself dwelling in his own house at rest as the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. I mean, he's, he's, he's been the conquering hero, right? And, and Hiram built him a house. Everybody loves him. He's just, he's just kicked back and relaxing. And David thought of building a house for God, right? So if Hiram's going to build me a house, I need to build a house for the Lord. And he asked Nathan the prophet about it. And Nathan said, hey, yeah, go do whatever you want to do. That night, the Lord came and gave a message to Nathan that he brought to David. God made note, has he ever asked for a house to be built for him as if he needed one? Rather, it says in 2 Samuel 2, 8 to 17. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in it in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I had appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all of his, this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God is making a one-sided covenant here with David. He's going to establish one, David have a great name. We still know about King David today. Here in 2022, we still talk about King David. Yes, God made his name great, that God would build David a house that would last forever, and that he would have a descendant that would be sitting on the throne and rule forever. Now, Solomon comes after David and does build a house for the Lord, but this is not the house of the Lord that that, that God is mentioning here, because obviously Solomon died and his rule is still not going on. Solomon's rule is still not going on. Jesus is that coming one that was going to come. And he will one day sit on the throne of David and rule over all of Israel and basically rule the world. The thousand year reign of Christ is coming when that will occur. And this is what's being foreshadowed in the scriptures. Well, right off the bat, right here, what you need to understand is the serpent has been looking since the beginning, since Genesis chapter three, about who the seed of this woman was that was coming, that was going to crush his head and what he could do at, at every turn possible to prevent the seed from the woman from crushing his head. God has given a very clear picture of the lineage through which this offspring will come. This offspring is coming from the line of David, right? Because he's going to have a house that exists forever, a throne that's going to exist forever, and his son, coming from his own body, is going to sit on that throne forever. What you're going to see in the Scripture from here on out is one calamity after another coming upon David, trying to destroy the witness, the favor, and the descendants of David. Even even continues after David dies, this continuation of the line of David all the way through Jesus, you know, it just continues all the way through. Now, David went out and fought many more battles and expanded his kingdom and made a name for himself. So now David's getting really puffed up, I think in his own mind. When it says he made a name for himself, remember they were going out in the Tower of Babel to build a tower into heaven to make a name for themselves? Well, here the text says that David made a name for himself because the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Then one fighting season comes along, and David decided to stay home and rest while Joab went out to war. And from the top of his palace, he spies one of his neighbors, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, taking a bath on her roof. And Uriah was one of David's closest and most trusted soldiers. He has an attendant go out and fetch Bathsheba for a one-night stand, which he does, in fact, accomplish this one-night stand and then sends her home the next day. Now, later Bathsheba lets David know that she's pregnant. Oh, bad news. 
David sends to the front lines to get Uriah to come back home to sleep with with Bathsheba. So so he doesn't. So he, when he comes back from the war and she's had a baby or she's still pregnant, they can say, "Oh, it was Uriah's baby." <laughs> Uriah re- refuses. He says, "How can I go home and sleep in my house when the army of Israel is at war?" So he, he stayed in the in the king's area, in the area of the king, and never went home. So David sends him back to Job with a, with a little special note that says. Uh, find an opportunity to to send uh, uh, Uriah the Hittite up uh, to near the front line so that he'll be killed. And of course, Joab arranges that and uh, sends a note back from the front lines telling David that they had a rough outing and that Uriah the Hittite was dead. After Bathsheba mourns for a while, David takes her for his own wife. And of course, he marries Bathsheba. Again, remember this, remember he made a name for himself. David must be thinking, I'm getting away with everything. Now I know that what I did was bad, but you know, I'm still going to get away with it. I, I, got, I got away with it. And thought perhaps he was playing the hero by marrying the pregnant wife of a, of a fallen soldier. But Nathan soon burst his bubble. Nathan comes in and tells David a story about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man had only one ewe lamb that he had raised from birth, and he always held this lamb and took care of it and loved the lamb as his own daughter. And now the rich man had a traveler who stopped, who just happened to stop by, right? And instead of taking one of his own out of his massive flock that he had of sheep, goats, cows, you know, you know, he had, he had, he had it all. He took the poor man's only ewe lamb, had it slaughtered and served for dinner. Now, David's response to this is that man, he was furious. He said, that man deserves to die. And then probably the most quoted line ever spoken in David's presence is, is Nathan's words back to uh, David in 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 14, but it's this first first line that really people know. Nathan says, David, you are the man. You are the man. No, you are the man. <laughs> right? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And of course, the child is born, born sick, sick for a week. David prays for a week that the child live, and of course, the child dies. And David and Bathsheba both mourn the loss of their son. David again goes and lies with Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant again, and they have another son, and they name him Solomon. Meanwhile, there's a whirlwind starting to be unleashed in David's house as a result of this sin. You can imagine that this this took a while, a year, year and a half for all this to come out. But all the while, everybody, I think, on the inside, especially the guy that went and got Bathsheba, knew knew what he was going on. Joab knew what was going on when he got back and found out, wait a minute, Bathsheba's pregnant. What are you talking about? David's not married Bathsheba. No wonder he wanted to kill you right. I mean, the word's now gotten out. Everybody knows. And as a result of that, David is very, um, he's crushed. He is crushed by what he has done. And everybody else knows that he's in a vulnerable situation. One of his sons, Amnon, is in love and infatuated with his sister, born by another wife of David. He ends up raping his sister, Tamar, and, and David does nothing. Absalom was, is Tamar's uh, brother. Absalom is a little upset at this. And he waits for everything to settle down. Then he calls a a party to have all the king's sons and invites the king when you come to a party. No, David said, I'm not going to go to a party. And Absalom said, well, let's all the sons come to this party. It's a great festival. So the king sent all the sons to this party, and then Absalom stands up at the party and kills Amnon. 
And then, of course, everybody flees. Then David thinks he's he's killed all of his sons. Well, in fact, he came back and Joab said, no, he didn't kill everybody. He just killed Abnon, the one who raped his sister Tamar. So uh, Absalom runs off to Gersher to hide out. And, and David is, uh, starts to mourn that, that, that Absalom's gone. Of course, he's, he mourns Amnon, his son, and he starts missing Absalom, but he's not doing anything about it. So Joab says, look, King, you need to bring Absalom back, you know, because he's wondering why is, why is he being held away from the kingdom for so long if you're not upset with him anymore? So David said, okay, fine, bring him back, but I don't want to see him. So David didn't see his son Absalom. So for the next few years, Absalom's working the fields, right? He's, he's, he's making people really appreciate him. If I were king, look at all the things I would do for you. You'd sit at the city gate and talk to people coming in. Absalom was this gorgeous gorgeous man, long hair, obviously very charismatic, and he convinced all the people that, that he really should be king. And so he conspires against his father and assembles a select crew of uh, people at Hebron who anoint him king at Hebron. So David hears about it, and David says, we need to get out of town, because uh, if this is started, Absalom's going to come here and wipe us all out. So he gets his whole family, and everybody leaves, and he leaves his concubines behind to take care of the palace. But everybody else flees the city, and they go into hiding as Absalom comes to take the kingdom of David. So, of course, first thing Absalom does is he takes David's concubines up to the roof and, and uh, lays with them on the roof, has sex with all of his concubines. This would be Absalom's attempt to say that he is superior to David, and in fact, snubbing David's face by having relations with his with his concubines. It's a really not a good thing to do. Unless, of course, you're trying to, to make a point to the persons whose concubines they are that, that uh, if you come back, I will kill you because I now have your stuff. There's a lot of intrigue that, that transpires after this in this account that I'm leaving out. Eventually, David's men... And Absalom's men meet in battle, and David commands his men before they go out, treat Absalom with tender care, do not kill him. And so Absalom's riding through the forest, and he's riding a mule, and he's got real thick hair, and his hair gets stuck in a branch, and the mule keeps going, but he's hanging there from a tree. And one of the soldiers sees him and goes back and told Joab, hey, I just saw Absalom hanging from the tree. And Joab said, well, did you kill him? He said, of course I didn't kill him. You heard the king. You know, take, watch out for my son, Absalom. And so Joab goes and buries three spears in Absalom's heart. Of course, Absalom dies, cuts him down from the tree. Once the armies of Absalom hear that Absalom dies, they all flee. And, uh, of course, David then starts to wail and moan, Oh, my son, oh, Absalom, poor Absalom. And, of course, the soldiers are coming back after the victory saying, yeah, here, we are out, here we are, David's being hunted down by Absalom. We kill Absalom to save David, and now David's crying out like, like we did something really horrible. So Joab goes in and rebukes David and says, look, you got to stop this. If you don't stop, it'll be even worse for you tomorrow than it was yesterday as you've rejected the, the soldiers who've been fighting for you. So David goes out, sits at the city gate, welcomes all the men coming back in. Thank you, thank you, you know, praising them for their, for their victory and all that kind of stuff. So the people felt a lot better. But the remorseful atmosphere in this whole thing. There's continued uh, attempts to usurp David, and they're all put down. And finally, the Phil- David goes back out to the side. He's going to go fight the Philistines again. And in, while he was in the battle with the Philistines, he almost got killed, right? And so then the leaders of the army said, that's it, David. You are never coming out to battle with us, lest the lamp of Israel be quenched, right, if he gets killed in battle. We can't have you being killed in battle, king. Just stay at home. So later in life, uh, David orders Joab to take a census. This is something Joab strongly opposed. Joab partially fulfilled the request, and as soon as the report was given to David, David got a word in his heart that he had sinned greatly once again. Oh, man, why did I take a census? Oh. Now, the prophet Gad comes to him and says, God's going to give you three options here, David. You can have three years of famine. You can flee from your foes for three months, or there'll be three days of plague in the land. Now, David chose the three days of plague as it would be for the Lord, and perhaps the Lord would have mercy. That's kind of how he said, I'd much rather be in the hands of the Lord than in the hands of man. Then the angel of the Lord went out and slew 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba. That's from north to south of Israel, killed 70,000. And then he just happened to be over Jerusalem when the Lord, when God told the angel to stop. You know, hold, stay your hand. And David just happened to be there, and he sees the angel standing there. And David says, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. That comes out of Second Samuel twenty four seventeen. And Gad the prophet came up to David and said, God wants you to raise an altar right here on the threshing floor of Aranach, the Jebusite, where you saw the angel of the Lord. You need to put an altar right here. 
And so the David bought the, uh, the threshing floor at full price. The guy said, look, I'll give it to you. David said, look, I'm, I will never take anything for the Lord that I didn't pay for. He paid full price for the threshing floor, and he built an altar there, and he presented uh, burnt offerings and uh, peace offerings. And the response of the Lord to those burnt offerings and peace offerings, offerings was that the plague was ended. Okay, now that ends the book of Second Samuel with that event. Well, we covered a lot on this episode, from the prophet Samuel to Saul, the first king of Israel, a king rejected by God, and finally to David, a king after God's own heart, yet who is still fallible. Samuel is the last prophet to rule in Israel. While he was without fault before the people, his own sons demonstrated they were not to be trusted. So even though Samuel was good, his own sons were not good. So the people demand a king who will both judge them and lead them into battle. They did this without realizing the power of sin and corruption to twist a person who is exalted to a position of power. And we see that first with King Saul, who falls almost immediately as soon as he's exalted. I mean, he was a very humble guy. He was, he was afraid. He was hiding in the baggage when they were looking for him to anoint him king, right? He didn't, want, he didn't know what that meant. And once he got there, and he, the power that he had, oh my gosh, it just went right to his head. He fell almost immediately. And then he continued to fall, filled with pride of himself, and he presumes to be king and the prophet. That's when he made the sacrifice at Gilgal. And then again, presumption that he's not going to get in trouble for not fully obeying God. And he brings back Agag and, and all the good all the good animals. Of course, it takes a little longer for David to get filled with self-exaltation, but he too gets self-exalted in his own mind. And God telling David he would be the most remembered king and his descendant would rule on the throne forever certainly didn't help but inflate his ego and pride. Right? So after this, not only am I good, but now God said, I'm <laughs> I am great. Eventually, he thinks he can take another man's wife with no consequences. And then the downfall begins, the twisting. He got twisted, and then the downfall begins. But God in his mercy does not allow David to fall beyond his own recognition of his own sin. And God grants David repentance, which David then repents and asks for forgiveness. And God allows David to return to God, which he does, which he doesn't provide for Saul. But for David, he did provide that allowance. On our next episode, we're going to be looking at First and Second Kings to see how susceptible to twisting and perversions the kings can get before God has enough. <laughs> it uh, it might it goes it goes pretty good for Solomon for a while, and then boy, the twisting really begins. It's not a pretty picture. Is it possible for any human king who would come upon the earth? Who would not be twisted or perverted? It's a question. Is that possible? We'll find the answer to this question in a future episode, Lord willing. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review the show. Show notes and other resources are found on my website, wayofthebible.com. Join me on the path and write me a note. Love to hear from you. My email address is drz, D-R-Z, at wayofthebible.com. Let me end this episode as I end all episodes to say this. Simply believe God and follow Jesus. Live as a child of light, overflowing with living water in the will of God, being joyful always, praying continually, and thankful in all circumstances. Be blessed, my brothers and sisters. We hope this episode of Way of the Bible has you feeling inspired and empowered to simply believe God and follow Jesus. Remember to search the scriptures to confirm what you've heard today. And join us next episode as we continue to discover together the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ and be transformed daily by the renewing of your mind. Knowing God's will for you is a life filled with joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. Be blessed.